this morning, I would have you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 and following. Genesis chapter 20, verse number 1. If you would stand when you get there in honor of God's Word. Genesis chapter 20, verse number 1 reads this way. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, said of Sarah, his wife, excuse me, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even, she herself said, he is my brother. And in the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hand, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld from you sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you when we come to Scripture that we're reminded of your position on sin, the way that you consider it in our lives and the way that you are opposed to every bit of it. We ask that as we come here to this place, remembering your death and your, your, your sacrifice, that, that we would take seriously this measure of sin. We would take seriously in our own lives and in the lives of others, Lord, that we would, be, we would be burdened because of it. Lord, in such a way that we would seek to make our relationships right first with you and with others also. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This is another one of those passages that comes up, and I've kind of been picking a little bit, picking a little bit at some of the harder things that we talk about. You know, Cain and Abel's sacrifice is a weird passage with regard to us not feeling very comfortable with the way that it manifests. Two people bring an offering, and, and one is rejected, and the other is accepted. It makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Well, in this story, and there's so much context that I don't have a, a ton of time to, to unpack everything, but I will tell you this. God made Abram at the time his name was Abram, made him a powerful promise about what he would become. And he sends him out and he gives him this beautiful image of what he should go and do and he tells him all this stuff about how his descendants will be so numerous that they won't be able to be numbered. And immediately, Abram sets out and in the course of his journey, God gives him a new name and he describes him as Abraham. In the course of that journey, he hears God's promise, but he sets into doing things his own way in such a way that he decides that he's going to try to navigate how to best get to the end of this promise. And in doing so, he does this thing where he systematically decides he knows better than God and decides to tell people something other than the whole truth. Now, I'm going to tell you right, right from the very get-go here, you, know, you don't have to be a parent in this place to know that nobody has to teach children how to lie. They just figure it out, right? We get to the scriptures, and it says 
about the, the pieces about the journey, but in verse two it says, Abraham said to Sarah, or of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. He's done this not, not just this time, but once before, and both times he gets caught. Both times what he's trying to avoid is the danger that he would have on himself from being a, a sojourner, a traveler in a foreign place. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a position in your life where you thought it would be better for me to lie about this than to get in trouble? Most of us would have to say that we have done this. And remember, you are in church. Most of us at some point, we withheld some bit of truth. We, we abstained from doing something with regard to telling the whole disclosure because we thought that it would shelter or protect us and we instinctively do this from our childhood and we have to be trained to not do it. We start out broken and we have to be corrected over the course of our lives. That's what the scripture teaches well, in this story, we see this beautiful picture of God's promise, and we see this unraveling of God's promise by man's plan constantly. And he, he tells his, his wife, and, and let me just help you here. The way the genealogies unfold, there is a bit of truth in what he says about her being related to him. That's kind of weird for us. We don't like that narrative, right? but there's a little bit of truth in it, enough truth that when they say it, it's not exactly inaccurate. But it's not the whole truth, is it? Point number one in your bulletin today is that a half-truth is a whole lie. Everybody, you know, you're gonna see that on the screen, a half-truth is a whole lie. Now I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say that. A half-truth is a whole lie. This is systematically something that each and every one of us needs to embrace. When we only tell part of the story, we don't give the full disclosure. And my wife will tell you that I'm good at telling the whole story and I'm the worst about getting people caught up because I will disclose so much information that all of a sudden, if somebody was trying to keep something discreet or, or quiet, that they, it'll all be known. And we, we call this the, you know, the gift of being truthful. I have this gifting in honesty. You know, because we don't always want to disclose everything, Right? And I would suggest that it's the truth. Most of us, as one, one writer wrote it in a, in a popular television program, he says, each and every one of us has a chapter in our life or chapters that we would rather leave unpublished. I mean, most of us look back over the course of our life and say, man, this portion of my life, if it went to the cutting room floor and nobody ever had to read about this part of me, I'd be satisfied and I'd be happy. But I'm telling you that that is not how it is with God. With God, when you see this kind of a thing, what happens is, is that you mess up your life and everybody else is around you. You can't be dishonest with God's plan or his promise, and you sure shouldn't in the world around you concerning the matters that he has instructed you on. Immediately in verse number three, it says, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night because Abimelech has decided that Sarah's beautiful and he wants to have, he wants to have all the beautiful women in his kingdom be his. And this is what kings did back in the time of Abraham. This is part of the reason Abraham is concerned. And so as a result, he sends for her. But immediately God comes to him, verse 3, in a dream by night and said to him. Now, most of us, we, we, don't, we don't put too much stock in the things we're dreaming about. But the dream language in the Old Testament, specifically in the New Testament alike, is very powerful and that God uses these times to speak to us and sometimes in a way that unsettles us and that we can't disclose to other people. You know, I have a reoccurring nightmare and I felt like it was unfolding this morning here in church. At some point, I realized that there's not enough battery in my, my microphone, so I'm like, I need a battery. And Justin says there's some in the nursery, back behind the nursery, in the closet, behind the closet, in the nursery. And if you know our church, you realize that that's a thing. 
And I go back there to find a battery, and when I find the battery, I realize I don't have my Bible. And I'm thinking to myself, did I lay it down back there? And I have to go back and look. You know why I have to go back and look? Because my reoccurring nightmare is that I get up to preach and I can't find my Bible. He was sitting back here at the sound booth, by the way. You know, God sometimes gives us these dreams. You know when you start dreaming about work? That's when you know you're really doing a job, right? You know, if I was just to get off on a tangent here and just tell you some of my other reoccurring dreams is that whenever I open my Bible, I can't understand a word that's in it. I start to turn it and try to figure it out. And, and I've studied two or three different languages trying to figure this thing out anyway, so I don't know. But God is using dreams to speak to kings. And he leans in and he says this really harsh thing. And we learn a very, very important message here. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. What? What? This makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? What has the king done wrong? Well, this is where we get to learn about something about, about how sin is in the world around us. Did you realize that if you sin against God on purpose, that's bad, right? We all understand that God said don't do it and we do it. That's bad, right? But sometimes we do things and we don't know that God has said don't do them and we do them anyway. And we learn about it later and we're like, I shouldn't have done that. I'll never forget having this, this very intense conversation with one of the guys that, that I, I was going to school with and I had mentioned something about what the scripture said is one of the qualifications of a minister. And he said, I didn't know it said that. And I was like, yes, sir. He's like, well, I don't do that. And I was like, maybe you should. What we learn about this is that God leans in and he looks at Abimelech's life and he considers the sin in Abimelech's life. And we learn that God is at war with sin. That's point number two in your bulletin, by the way. That God is at war with sin. I want you to look at your neighbor and say that this morning. God is at war with sin. If you don't believe that, then you sure don't understand what we did earlier with the Lord's Supper. If you don't believe that, then you don't understand what it means to be forgiven or accepted by God in a way that, that is, that is heart-wrenching and is tearing at the very fibers of our heart because you don't fully understand what it is that he's done for us. Because God hates sin. He hates it in your life and he hates it in mine. He hates it in the world around us. While he is love and while he loves you, he does not love the sin in your life. There's no way, shape, or form that he's ever gonna get comfortable with the sin in your life. Because of that, he leans into Abimelech and says, you're a dead man. And Abimelech is like, hey, wait a minute. I didn't even know I was doing anything wrong. And you say, well, what in the world could we learn from this, Brother Ben? And I will tell you that the point number three in your bulletin, and, and I'm just, just hammering through this just really quickly all of a sudden, I want you to get this picture with me. And you need to hear this, point number three. God is equally concerned with your sins and mine. The same. And I know that that's not exactly how it will appear on the, on the board here, but, but God is equally concerned with each and every one of our sins. And another way that I could word that in a way that maybe drives it home a little bit better, God is not more concerned with the sins of other people than he is with yours. Did you hear what I just said? So if you have to boil everything down and you stop talking about everybody else and you only talk about you and you talk about your relationship with God, realize that those sins that are in your life, that's the number one enemy of God, the sin that's in your life. And God is dealing with that in each and every one of us. And so that when Abimelech does this thing that's wrong before God, he is not talking about Abraham. He is talking about Abimelech. 
Oftentimes we like to do this thing where when the sin comes up in us, we like to say, well, it's not as bad as some of the other people out there. It's not as wrong as some of the other things that I've seen. I'm not nearly as corrupt as some of the other things. And I want to say that if you really measure it down, God is equally concerned with what's wrong in your life and what's wrong in theirs. And there's no way to escape it. And you can't just say, well, it's not as bad as some people. It's, it's something that is causing a division and a separation between you and the Almighty. And God was at war with it just such a way that when he finally come time to have the big battle over it, what does he do? He sends the one person who's qualified to defeat it. That's his son. And when Jesus comes to earth, born of a virgin, into this world to live a perfect and sinless life, he is not here to perform miracles and make you feel better about yourself and just teach good lessons. He is not here to do that. Although he does that, that is not why he came. He came to battle the sin in the world and to put it to death once and for all. And he succeeds in this. And that's one of the most powerful pictures that we have when we look at, at how God is working on our behalf. That he knows there's only one way to fix it. He knows there's only one way to deal with it. You have sin in your life. You have sin in your situation. You have sin and you think to yourself, well, I'm not as bad as other people. And you ought to back up just a moment and say, but I'm equally as bad as I am before God. And he cares equally about that as he cares about anything else. There's no way to skate it or skirt around it. And most of us, we really struggle with what comes next because Abimelech is, is dealing with it. Verse number four, but Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? And he says, there are implications. If you kill me as king, it will destroy this nation. And here's another thing you need to hear. God doesn't put on pause his judgment because of the repercussions that it might have on a nation because he's dealing with each and every one of us individually. So if you have rights and responsibilities to the world around you and you decide to willfully go into a manner of behavior that is sinful before God, know that it could affect every single one of them and you ought to be careful. It's why ministers are judged so harshly. It's why the church is under a microscope right now because when we mess up, the whole world looks at us and says, you impact everyone around you because you are supposed to be the truth and the hope and the life. You're supposed to push Jesus up in front of everyone. And when you falter, everybody doubts it. That's why we're judged so, so harshly. We look at the scriptures and we see the powerful nature of it and we understand this picture. And he says, would you slay a righteous nation also? I am convinced that God would, would rescue each and every one of us out of our personal sin because our organizations are not nearly as important as the shame we bring to him when we claim his name and then do the wrong things. It goes on in verse five, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even say, even she herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and in the sense of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. This bit of grace that just weaves itself into the story where most kings would have their prize immediately, he allows Abimelech to have this little insulation where he's like, it hasn't yet occurred, the thing that would cause him this deep divide between him and God. And, and there's this picture, this moment of hesitation where you're like, is there still a chance? There was a young boy who sits in a courtroom and he's, he's dealing with, with a judge that is looking down upon him and he asks the boy, he's in the courtroom because he stole a watermelon. 
It's a juvenile court, and, and the judge says, do you have anything to say before you're sentenced? And the young boy says, yes, sir, I do. And he says, have you ever stolen a watermelon? And laughter begins to ripple through the crowd. Most of us at some point in our life as children have taken something petty from somewhere else, right? The judge kind of feeling this moment and the laughter that's rippled across looks at the young boy, realizes his own guilt at times in his own life and says, cross-examination will not be allowed, sentence dismissed. And there's a picture here that there's this bit of understanding that when we look to each other in the world around us, knowing that God has woven into the story some bit of grace, that there will be some bit of hope some bit of honesty. Dr. Madison Surratt was a professor of trigonometry at a university and he decides that he's going to give a test, an exam, and it's time for a major examination in the course of his students. In doing so, he, he tells them when they, they sit before him and he's handed out the paper, he says, I'm giving out not one but two tests today. The first one's about trigonometry and the second one's, one's about honesty. And he's like, if you're going to fail one, fail the one about trigonometry. He's like, the math you can learn later, but the honesty you can only have once. And good people, if there is such a thing, know to be honest. And I believe that oftentimes when we come to God, we know that we are going to fail at the test, but we can at least be honest. And Abimelech says, I haven't, man, I haven't done anything wrong, have I? And God's like, yeah, you've taken this man's wife. So God gives them some instruction that makes our head hurt and our hearts hurt. And and there's a reason for it. I guarantee there's a reason for it. It goes on in verse number seven. Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. It says, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are are yours. And there's this picture, and it's like, wait, you, you mean that, he lied about his wife, and I got to go back to him? And you say, Brother Ben, now this is really messed up. First, he's in trouble because he didn't know, and now he's in trouble in a second way where he's got to go back and try to mend something that doesn't seem like it's his fault, right? And this is the part where we really have our noodles baked. We don't like this at all about the story because we're like, well, God should deal with him separately, Right? Wrong. And here's where this gets real personal. Okay? Do you know God wants you to have a right relationship with him? But as a result, he wants you to have a right relationship with others. And there's a message in the story about us working to have a right relationship with other people as much as is humanly possible in the world around us. And oftentimes, we think that we can be right with God, which is a great starting place and a right place to be. Salvation is born to this. Our our acceptance and our forgiveness is born to this. But man, our standing in the world around us, which becomes our witness and our testimony, is established on our right relationship with other people. And it cannot be born out of our inability to be reconciled with the people around us that we did things accidentally or on purpose to harm. We have to be right about this as much as is humanly possible. Why? Because it is our whole testimony. It is the witness of the world around us. When we take this cup and we have this bread like we did earlier today, we are telling the world, I believe that Jesus died and that he is my sacrifice. And when we tell the world this, we're saying 
something about ourselves. And if that thing that we say about ourselves has broken relationships all throughout our community and our families, what does it tell us? It says, man, they're good with God, but they're not good with people. But if we believe this book, we ought to be right with people. But that's hard, isn't it? Brother Ben, you're meddling now. Brother Ben, you're dealing with hard things because there's lots of us that have broken relationships and we have every right to be upset at the people who broke those relationships, don't we? Mm. But God says, I'm here to save them too because I'm equally concerned with their salvation the same way I'm concerned with yours. And that's the story. If he's equally concerned with your sin, he's equally concerned with your salvation. And all of God's people said, and because of that, we would work hard to be right with God and then right with others. And if you need a, a picture, imagine that when you point up to heaven, I need to be right with God. And then you point outward and I need to be right with everyone else as much as is humanly possible. The story goes on to say that Abimelech, he, he encounters Abraham, and I didn't read it with you this morning, but he does all that God requires of him. He even scolds Abraham a little bit. Probably not as much as Abraham deserved, right? I think if, if I were like Abimelech, what I would say is I'm just happy to be getting out of here, not skinned. You see, God in this moment takes an opportunity to shear his sheep, one of his creations. He takes the razor and he lays that sheep bare of all of its hair. There's no fur left upon this, no wool on this sheep, right? But God could have easily taken the razor out and skinned him, but he doesn't. Because you can only skin an animal one time, but you can shear it frequently. And God is here today to shear each and every one of us on a regular basis to clean us up and get us ready. Man, we'll grow out again over time. We don't like being in the hands of the shepherd when it comes time for shearing. And I guarantee you like it a lot better than being in the hands of the shepherd when it comes time for skinning. That's why Jesus came, so that we didn't have to get skinned. He could correct us when we could be right with him and then with other people. Some of us today are in this place and we maybe have, we have busted relationships. Maybe we have grudges and angers and hatreds toward people that we feel like we have every right to have. But would you tell a person that they weren't worthy of God's salvation? You might have already said it. You see, point number four in your bulletin is that this restoration, this bit of, of of hope of God is costly to us. It cost you a lot less in your pride than it did him on the cross. And all of God's people said, ouch, right? Because the reality is, is that, man, people don't want to hear this from a pastor when he says, you need to make the relationships. You know, we have remembered Jesus today. Now we need to look at the world around us and say, what can we do to restore those relationships? How can we be sent from here to do this, because God is at war with sin, including the sin that separates us. I say there's an F word that we're not allowed to say in the world around us, and people are like, oh, we all know that F word. Be careful where your mind's at. You're at church. The F word I'm talking about is forgiveness, and we don't like it very much either. We love it when people offer it to us, but we don't like it when it comes time to offer it to other people. Forgiveness is an F word for most people, even though they say they follow Jesus. They sure want it, but they sure don't know how to offer it to people. And today might be the first step in you being real angry at me. I hope not. I hope you'll see the, the, that the heart behind it is one of love that would say, do your best to reconcile to these people. 
Do your best to live peacefully in the midst of all of the people. Abimelech was a guy who just was doing what he thought was right, what he thought he was owed. And God leans in and says, no, this isn't right. And as a result, he has to fix his relationship with Abraham. Man, but I'm going to tell you there's another F word I don't like very much, and it's called fair. All the F words, Brother Ben. Maybe that's what the title of the sermon should have been. Forgiveness is hard, but fair is harder, and I'm going to tell you why. And I'll use this to close us up today. I don't like the four-letter F word fair because of this. Because if things were fair today, I would die a sinner's death and go straight to hell. If things were fair, God would never have looked in and leaned into my life and offered me salvation. He never would have given me any hope at all. That's what fair is. Fair is knowing that I deserve to die. I don't like fair. I am excited about a Savior that leans in and says, I'm going to give you this opportunity. If you'll follow these simple things, you'll find my son and be forgiven that it won't be fair for you. It'll be better than fair. Do you want that in your life today? Because you have it already if you know Jesus. Stop trying to be fair with the relationships around you. Start being better. As we open this time of invitation, I'm going to ask you to stand. And you're going to be ready when we, we start playing music and, and I get down here, you can come and you can ask for us to pray about anything. But maybe you want to come and you want to talk to God about the things in your life. How you've been judgmental of other people because God is obviously more concerned with their sins than yours, which is inaccurate. Maybe you need to be less concerned with their sin and more concerned with their salvation. Enough so that you stop trying to be fair because it wasn't fair for you and it's not fair for me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this time to look to scripture, to, to see the words on the page. I pray that as we have encountered you this morning, that we would be compelled, Lord, to be 100% honest with the whole truth and not just part of it. That we would be committed to seeking that which is not fair for those around us who don't deserve our forgiveness or our grace the same way we didn't deserve yours. I pray that we would have the courage to reach out to you and say, I need help mending these relationships. I need help fixing these broken things. I need help to be that because none of us are capable of doing very well on this on our own. I ask for this, Lord, this time of invitation to be a holy time where we give our hearts to you. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen.